0: From KLCC Media, this is the Oregon Grapevine. I'm Barbara Dellenbach. The Oregon Grapevine highlights fresh-pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. Helzer is a sculptor of bronze pieces, including the sighting stone at the top of Mount Pisgah, doors in the Jackson County Library, accessible play areas in several cities, and Ken Kesey in Eugene's Kesey Square. Thanks for being here, Peter. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I'd like to start at the beginning. How did you get started in art and sculpture?
1: Well, I I did a degree in art, sort of went the formal route with a Master of Fine Arts, and um, and then I uh, taught school for about 12 years. <laughs> I actually started at elementary level, and then middle school, and then high school, and then a university, and then I realized there was nowhere else to run, so I came back to Eugene, and there weren't any teaching jobs available. So I started just basically fairly small doing gallery work, and then that got a little larger, and I think the first major pieces I did were the uh, little dancers in the Holt Center, the little bronze ballerinas. You know, there's one thing led to another, and then I started winning public, you know, percent for art commissions around the state. And after you win a few of those, it gets easier to win the next one because there's kind of this odd catch-22 where... Uh, to win a public commission they want to see five slides of previous public commissions and if you know you're trying to get started that's pretty hard to produce unless you want to do five things for free and uh, but so after I won a few then it got easier to win the next one and I, I never in a million years thought I would ever be able to make a living as a sculptor and you know here I am 35 years later and still still working in the foundry so
0: and you have a little foundry but before that when you first kind of did your piece you you created it which we'll get to kind of the process and then how did you fire how did it become a piece of bronze did you realize early on you needed a place to do that
1: well i took i took a couple of classes at the university of oregon in bronze casting because they had a um they had a foundry small foundry at that time and so I went through their program, which was, you know, it, it was really geared towards small pieces, you know, nothing bigger than coffee table size. When I when I did the Holt Center dancers, I had, you know, I could I could do the clay. That was not a problem. I could get them, you know, life size, and um, I could transfer for the clay into wax because bronze casting requires that it be in wax at some point because it's called last lost wax casting and so I had one of the dancers in wax and I took it up to a commercial foundry in Portland and they gave me a price estimate was that was more money than I was making in a year of teaching school so I was kind of moaning and groaning to a friend of mine in Portland who was a potter, a guy named Keith Levinson. And, and he made his living as a potter, and he had built several kilns, and he was saying, you know, how, how hot does bronze have to get anyway? And I said, well, you know, it melts temperature at you know, 21... You pour it about 2,100 degrees. It's, it melts a little lower than that, but we'd need to have a, a furnace that would get up to 2,100 degrees. And he looked at me and he said, "That's nothing. you know twenty uh, pottery goes way higher than that. you know we could let's just build a foundry And so uh, the two of us just sort of put our heads together and built a foundry, and he knew a lot about heat and it was kind of embodied in him. he He could look at a kiln and tell you what temperature it is just by the color of the of the kiln and you know, I learned a tremendous amount from him, and and we worked together for about. 10 or 12 years, we started by building a little foundry up in Portland and worked out of that, and uh, that's where the whole Center Dancers were cast. And then eventually um, I moved it down to Eugene, and then eventually to Pleasant Hill, and then from Pleasant Hill out to Dexter. So it's kind of followed me around.
0: How big, how tall a piece can you create in this foundry?
1: When I was 25, trying to impress people I used to do really heavy pours you know we could pour up to 200 pounds of a, a pour in one mold but as I got older and smarter uh, and realized you know what I can weld things together <laughs> I don't have to t- cast these enormous pours and you know because they're more they're da- more dangerous and and you don't quite get as good a detail when you get all that pressure in the molds and so you know, then I started casting more, you know, sixty pound sections and then welding those together. So you can you can go as big as you want. I mean I can go, you know, twenty feet tall if I want by just casting a whole bunch of sixty pound sections and then welding those together and and then um you know, grinding and filing the welds off and so that's kinda how I do it now. I think the Lewis Southworth piece that I just finished for the coast was cast in, uh, I think it was 18 different sections, and then welded together.
0: Let's go to that piece, the Southworth piece. Since you've mentioned it, what tell us who who he was is how this project came about.
1: Well, I was contacted by some people in Walport. Um, Jesse Dolan uh, was one of the one of the figures. He's uh, head of the coastal uh, tourism for the central Oregon coast. And he asked me if I'd be interested in doing this piece because they were building a park down there called Lewis Southworth Park. And I didn't know anything about Lewis Southworth. I'd never heard of him. It turns out uh, it was the most intriguing story. In fact, I I was kind of reluctant to take the project until I found out who he was because I had some other things that I'd already committed to and it was going to be a lot more work. And wasn't sure I wanted to do that. Uh, I'd like to you know spend some time hiking in the hills and doing some things with my wife and um but the story was so intriguing uh, Lewis Southworth came to Oregon in eighteen fifty three as a slave to a man named james Southworth, and he was in his twenties at the time, and he was a most intriguing human being because he had so many s- skills so many diverse skills that he could do sort of a Renaissance man James Southworth started out having him work in the mines and the gold goldfields in southern Oregon Jackson County and Lewis Southworth uh, played the fiddle and he soon realized that he could make more money playing the fiddles for the mining camps he did less mining and more fiddle playing, and he was a very talented musician. He wound up, you know, teaching violin and fiddle and playing dances and um, all of his life, really, and so he was a very popular figure in that regard because there weren't a lot of fiddle players walking around Oregon in in 1853, and uh, they traveled around a lot. They lived in several different counties, California for a while, and several, several counties in Oregon, and eventually, you know, with the the manument laws uh, throughout the United States, which specified terms in which slaves could buy their own freedom, he sort of <laughs> saved up the equivalent, I, I think in today's economy, it would have been about $36,000. My wife actually crunched the numbers on it to see. He made that within about four or five years, playing the fiddle. Now, that's that's one heck of a fiddle player. And you know, that was just money he was making and tips. And so he just dumped that on James Southworth, his enslaver, and said, hey, here's your money. I'm out of here. And James Southworth uh, sort of objected and tried to take it to the Oregon Territorial Court, where he lost, and Louis Southworth was then a free man. Uh, Louis Southworth lived in uh, Monroe, Oregon, for a while. He actually lived in Vanita for a while, then moved up to uh, Monroe, and then eventually um, homesteaded um, in Walport, Oregon. Before that, he lived, in a, he lived in Buena Vista by Salem, and while he was there, was in his 30s, he met a man who was a schoolteacher, and he said, Would you teach me how to read and write? The guy said, Yeah. And so within a year, he learned how to read and write, uh, he was a very intelligent fellow. He did a lot of reading and writing. Um, when he moved to Walport, he built a ferry to move people across the the Elsie Bay. He, um, he started a sawmill. He worked as a blacksmith. Uh, he just had so many skills. He built his own rifle, which was sort of the envy of the Willamette Valley. He trained horses, which actually were performing at the Oregon State Fair, He was a very generous man helping his neighbors because he had so many skills that were in desperate need in Walport, Oregon, in the mid-1800s. So all those things, but one of the most intriguing things to me was he, since he learned to read and write so late in life, he valued that so much that he sort of convinced his neighbors of the need to start a public school. Uh, He donated some of his own donation land claim uh, to build a school on. I think he, I can't remember how many acres it was, but helped build a schoolhouse and then was elected by the people of Walport to serve as chair of the school board. And uh, he was married. He had an adopted son, which he raised, uh, who went on to be elected to the Walport City Council and served, I think, in the 1920s. After his wife died, he moved to Corvallis, and he was a very popular figure in Corvallis and uh, taught fiddle. Uh, as he got older and in poor health, he ran into some financial difficulties, and one of the interesting things to me is that the people of Corvallis uh, raised funds to pay off his house so he could live out his final years in comfort. And he lived into his 80s. He was a a pretty big celebrity by the time he died intriguing intriguing fellow so with all of that I,
0: I how could i turn it down in terms of other projects uh, in terms of public art which we talked about when someone says we're building a building and there's a there's money out there for public art do are there generally kind of ideas they give you or do you sit there and go okay no i think what we need to do is this particular figure or this idea or how how do you create your projects
1: If it's a public art commission, if it's coming through the Percent for Art, um, there'll be a selection committee that puts together a prospectus which will tell you what the budget is, where the sculpture would be located, a little bit about um, the surrounding environment, and then they would ask for proposals. So you write up a proposal, you... um, Submit that along with some slides, or, or um, now it's JPEGs of your of your work. And they screen your letter of interest. Um, they look at your resume. They look at your, your, your images. And then they generally select three or four finalists to come and do a presentation. Usually it involves presenting some kind of a little maquette or model of your work, and giving a five-minute to ten-minute presentation of your ideas and how you think this would best um, suit the park. And then they, you know, then you go home. The committee votes, and they make some phone calls and tell you whether you've won or not.
0: As you're doing your pieces, do you, is there a moment when you think, that's it. I imagine there's a process for you. Is there kind of an aha moment or does it just kind of a gradual when you realize that's what I want it to look like?
1: It depends. Some of them are wide open. You know, we have this space and we have this money and um, do whatever you want. There are not too many of those. Usually they give you some parameters of what they want. They'll give you some theme. We would like this sculpture to be reflective of the history of uh, this, this particular Uh, city or space or or building, um, something like that. And then you work within some of those. I'll give you an example. Um, I did a, a sculpture for Tualatin, Oregon, and I got a prospectus from them. And the prospectus said that there was a dog food plant in downtown Tualatin, which was eventually bought out by Hearts Mountain and then, you know, it employed a significant amount of people in Tualatin. And then Hearts Mountain moved, I believe, to Texas. And they sold the land that the dog food plant was on to the city of Tualatin for, you know, a dollar or something ridiculous. And, and, you know, kind of as a thank you, but we're out of here. Uh, you can have the land. Um, all you have to do is tear down all these buildings, and <laughs> it's all yours. Um, well, Tualatin took that and turned it into this beautiful commons area with a three-acre lake, and it was really beautiful. But in the prospectus, it said that they wanted something that would be related to pets because of the—it of the, you know, used to be Alpo, actually, um, Alpo dog food. So they wanted something that would be related to pets— uh, that would go into this sort of um, park-like area next to this little promenade that goes around their little three-acre lake. It's really beautiful, actually. And there are little ice cream shops and stuff around there, and coffee shops, and it's it's quite quite pleasant. Some restaurants. And what I remember about Tualatin when I was in high school is that there were about 300 people living there, and there were a lot of fields around that a lot of us used to hunt pheasants in and things like that. And the dog food plant, if you went downtown Tualatin, really smelled bad. <laughs> I mean, it would terrorize a skunk. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do for a project here? And and I, you know, the first thought I had was, you know, some guy standing there looking at the bottom of his shoe. And then I thought, well, that's not going to work. Um, so I thought, okay, everybody's going to do a dog jumping to catch a frisbee. And so, I'm not going to do a dog jumping to catch a frisbee. And I thought of my daughter Allison, who used to, you know, we had a golden retriever for a while, and and she would walk across her backyard holding a sandwich or something up high as she could, so the dog couldn't get the sandwich, and you know, and toddle across the yard. She's you know, five or six years old. And so I did a a statue uh, or a little sculpture of a of a six-year-old girl, holding an ice cream. Over her head, and a golden retriever sort of begging um, beside her. So that's what I submitted. And sure enough, every, every all the other proposals were a dog jumping to catch a frisbee, and mine was the only one that had something a little different. And the committee liked it; made them laugh. And so they commissioned me to do that that sculpture. And so that's kind of how it works. Um, you know, there's some parameters for the public art. You have some creative leeway, but you also have a theme to work with. And that was the case in most of the things that I've worked with. There was a sort of a, a theme that I could interpret any way I wanted, but as long as it communicated to the to the committee and to the community, then uh, that it was in good shape.
0: There's a lot of projects we could touch on. The one I would like to touch on before asking you a completely unrelated question is some parks that you've been working on that are accessible parks, accessible art for kids with different. Disability people with different kinds of disabilities. Could you touch on how that works?
1: Well, that all started when I got a phone call from a man in Portland named Cody Goldberg, who's he's quite well known in that area now because he's, you know, he's been on Good Morning America talking about his parks and and, and um, he's done a TED talk. He had a daughter with special needs. Um, they. When she was born, the doctors told him that she would never be able to walk, she would never be able to talk, she would probably not live very long. Uh she has done remarkably well over the years. I, I believe she's a teenager now, and she is walking and doing doing quite well. But when she was a, a very young girl, he lived across the street from a park, and since his daughter used a walker, and there was a lot of sawdust in the park between the sidewalk and the play structures, um, he, was, he realized that even though the park satisfied all the American disability laws and regulations, his daughter could not have a play experience in that park. She couldn't get across the sawdust. She couldn't climb up the slide with her walker. Uh, so he set out to change that. He started with, you know, just neighborhood bake sales and... Um, then started knocking on doors of you know Adidas and Nike and people like that, and within fairly short time, a couple of years maybe, wound up raising a couple million dollars and designing a park with the help of some landscape architects, but with a tremendous amount of input from Cody and what he thought uh, children with special needs would require to have a reasonable play experience, uh, designed this park in, as part of Arbor Lodge Park, and they've named it Harper's Playground after his daughter. And it was simple things like, instead of a slide with a ladder, you climb and slide down, which most kids in wheelchairs and walkers wouldn't be able to use, he, he just built a hill and had a spiral ramp sort of going up to the top that you could get a wheelchair up And then a slide that would go down the side of the hill, which was wide enough that two people could go down next to each other if they wanted. And the end of the slide was at an angle where they wouldn't just go flying off into space, but they would have, you know, room to slow down and stop before they went off the end of the slide. Initially, people talked about these as parks for children with special needs. But then we realized that most of the kids playing there and having a ball were were kids without special needs so we just talked about them as accessible parks they're accessible to everybody so that started i don't know 10 years ago or so and i think i did uh, and and what Cody Cody had seen some of my other work some stuff i did for the swim park at amazon and and um some things i had done earlier for arbor lodge park children's play areas and so um, he contacted me about working with him and a group of landscape architects on Harper's Playground, and so I got together and met with them, and and I did. I think more like an architect anyway. I think I more like a landscape architect. Uh, it's not like I just think something up out of my head. I I tend to listen to clients. I try to find out what the parameters are, and then I work within those parameters and within their budget to you know, do the best best I can. Harper's Playground was so successful in terms of the amount of people that were, were going to the park. I mean, they were driving 20 miles to have their children have an experience playing in that park. And it was always packed. And um, so we got, or Cody got requests for other parks. And so there was one in Bainbridge Island. And then there was another one in Portland. And then there was one in Salem. And that's sort of taken off. And the latest project we're working on now is one in um, Vancouver, Washington, a park called Marshall Park, which I think is going to be a huge hit because it's really big and it's a beautiful location. And uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm behind it. And it's, you know, 11 acres or so. It's It's a big park and it'll have a really special playground.
0: The other part of you that we haven't touched on that I believe you also are a poet and a musician, if I'm not mistaken. How does, <laughs> how does that fit in? Oh,
1: <laughs> where did that come from?
0: Um, no, I uh, <laughs> i deny it. Um, There's a picture on your website of you with a banjo, Peter. So.
1: Oh, there is. Okay. <laughs> um, does banjo count? <laughs> you know, I suffer so many jokes about banjos. Uh, you know, banjos and bagpipes, and my you know,
0: husband's a banjo teacher and player. So I have, oh, to, I right? have to, you know, throw out there that they're not all bad.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I play, I play banjo. I started playing when I was, I don't know, my late twenties, I suppose. And um, yeah, I still have, I don't know, can't have too many banjos. I think I have five or six of them, <laughs> um, and then. When my daughter came along, uh, my daughter Allison she was a much much better musician than me I mean she actually plays gigs and uh, she started playing tenor banjo four string banjo um Irish tenor banjo, and then um, sort of went from that to tenor guitar and Irish music to classical music to you know all kinds of stuff so, but she's when when she's around i I sort of kick the banjo behind the couch and <laughs> pretend that I've never seen it before uh, because she's so much better than I am. But, um, you know, I have a few friends that I play with and, you know, my wife and I tinker around on, on that. And music is a is a fun sort of recreational thing. I don't take it seriously. I don't perform or anything like that. It's just more back porch stuff. And the writing is kind of the same way. I actually do more prose writing and essays than I do poetry. Um, I appreciate poetry And I have a lot of friends who are very good poets, but to call myself a poet would be a real stretch.
0: The secret side of the sculptor. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in and talking today about your work and your life. I appreciate you being on the Oregon Grapevine and and appreciate the work you're doing. Oh, it was really fun. Thank you very much. You've been listening to KLCC Media's The Oregon Grapevine, fresh pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live.